This is a Media Lab podcast. Dave, like, what do you even know about 1971? Seven, uh, that's before 71 exists. I was born in 78. That's when I assumed the world started uh, for me. Um, what do you know? Uh, barely nothing. <laughs> to be brutally honest with you here, I'm getting really scared about our upcoming season trying to put this all into context. I feel like we need to have somebody give us some context setting here for us. Do, do you know anybody that we could talk to? No, the last person I met that had an afro was, uh, that was a couple of years ago. I didn't get his number. So okay. I, uh, I mean, we could, we can go back to that street corner and see if he I don't, pops up. I don't up. think that's going to be an option here for us. You know no. what? I, I, I know a person. I wonder if the machine will let us like call out. Let's just see here. Let me just push these buttons here. Uh, Ben? Hello? Oh, good. You you picked up. I think that's how phones work. It's been so long. I know. In the 1970s. Say, I only refer I only reply to texts anymore. Um uh, Ben, I, I was hoping that we might be able to steal you away for like, you know, a few minutes here. And uh, ask you some questions about, well, I guess movie history. Are you are you up for a conversation about oh, movie history? Well, Kyle, I'm always up for a conversation about movie history. As people who listen to my podcast, Scream Scene, will well know. Uh, yeah, I think I can spare you some time. Oh, good. I've been told that Scream Scene is available everywhere you get podcasts. Is that true? That's that's true. Um, your top spots to look for it would be Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Mm -hmm. But really, just anywhere uh, if you get a hold of our RSS feed. I don't know if the news has made it to Earth yet, but Dave and I, in this upcoming season of Kyle and Dave versus the Machine, are going to be delving into the films of 1971. Oh. And I have some, like... I don't know, ideas about what was going on at the time. But I have no idea if they're based in reality at all. And I'm sure Dave <laughs> has some preconceived notions here, too. That's how I live my that's, life. Kyle. That's right. Correct me if I'm wrong. I, I don't know exactly where we even want to start here. All I know is that kind of by the late 60s, like the Hayes Code and all that kind of stuff that was like regulating Hollywood's output was basically gone. But I don't know if you can get into context of even what that was. Sure, absolutely I can. So the the last year you guys were trapped in was 1999, wasn't Correct, it? Correct, yes. Yeah, so a good year. A good, good year. year. Uh 1971 is a, a similarly good year. Do you guys know off the top of your head uh any films that maybe you're looking forward to? Uh I'm looking forward to revisiting like A Clockwork Orange. I've actually never seen yeah. Dirty Harry ever in my okay. life. Um, how, how do you have a movie podcast, Kyle? I know. Is, you didn't even watch Godfather 2. No, it's, it's ridiculous, here? isn't it? Um, he's got the movie podcast so that he can have an excuse to watch all these things. Exactly. That he's never seen. <laughs> Having looked Ben's up, clearly your friend. Now, knowing that that is the year we're in and looking <laughs> forward uh, ahead to it, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's been remade and stuff in modern in modern history, uh, Dave, is there any f films that for sure, like, this is what I'm really looking forward to? Well, presuming we actually uh, planned ahead, I think uh, French Connection is going to be good because that used to be one of my favorites. We'll see if it holds up. I haven't watched that in many years. And uh, what was it? A Clockwork Orange, I'm both interested and fearful of. The many times I've watched it, I leave that feeling like I've been in that right. dystopian world. So that's kind of a creepster film. Plus, we already did Kubrick, so... <laughs> 
I'm not sure if I want to go back into that mind. Well, was there another? Oh, I've never watched Lucas's first film. Right. THX so, 1138. THX 1138. Yeah. Fun fact, you can't actually watch the original theatrical version anymore. So we're <laughs> if we do watch it's that movie, like, we won't be actually seeing what they saw in 1971. Fun fact, who cares? It's weird. It's almost like George Lucas has this thing where he doesn't want mm-hmm. anyone to know that I he can... made a movie before. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, that said, I will say about the the quote unquote director's cut of THX 1138 that while I disagree with some of the extraneous CGI that was added in like two or three spots, um, the actual re-editing is, is actually good. Um, there are some re-editing choices that were made that clear up the story quite a bit. Right. Um, so... It's it's little column A, column B. I mean, the Star Wars special editions are the same thing. I think there are people who go, well, I like this thing that was changed. I don't like this thing that was changed. I think that's kind of a common attitude. I guess to make 1971 make sense, yeah. we've got to start before 1971. Mm-hmm. Because... So the Earth was created. Yes, uh, yeah. that's right. <laughs> uh, to understand why something like, you know, the movies you're going to be seeing are significant... Um, you kind of have to understand what movies were like just before this. So, so, you know, when you think of old Hollywood, you think of, you know, Jimmy Stewart, like, Oh gosh, Martha, I'll, I'll rope you down the moon. And then you think of like 1971, we're in dirty Harry time. And it's like, you know, well, do you feel lucky punk? Well, it's like, Okay, how do you get from that to that? I mean, that's the biggest thing. Dave, I don't know if you agree with me, but like my perception of like 60s film, and I know that things like gradually change, but if you're just saying the average 60s film, it's like Technicolor and like bright Mm -hmm. lights and like goofy things happening on on screen. It's like, and then you get into like 70s film and I'm thinking it's like Scorsese and like mafia films and like gritty kind of stuff and it seems like Mm -hmm. whoa like what happened in those 10 years that just made it flip a switch yes exactly and there's a lot of answers to that question so i will try to run you through it in as quick and as coherent a version as i can i think the single word answer is hippies kyle hippies (laughs) i think they ruined everything (laughs) well um a a better single word answer like if i had to give a single word answer it would be vietnam there's a little political. bit more to it yeah. than that. Sure. Uh, yeah, we'll walk over from that. So you mentioned the Hayes Code. Yeah. And I figured that in order to talk about why that stopped being a thing, I got to talk about what that is to yeah. start with. So if we go all the way back in time to the dawn of Hollywood in the 1910s. My personal favorite movie time period. And I know you're going, wait a minute, that's a long time. But hey, everything starts somewhere. So in the 1910s, the states started to form censorship boards uh, across America um, for film. The way that these censor boards worked is your film, in order to be legally exhibited in that state, uh, had to be submitted to the state censor board, which then charged a fee for your film to be submitted to that board. And um, that fee was larger the more film they had to cut from your movie. Mm. Uh, So the more stuff they could find to cut out of your film, the more money they made. And if you didn't submit to a board, you couldn't exhibit in that state. So you can maybe understand why the film corporations of the time 
didn't like that deal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, a company called Mutual Film Corporation took the state of Ohio to court, um, alleging that their First Amendment rights to freedom of speech were violated by this process. By 1915, that case reached the U.S. Supreme Court, which unanimously ruled in Ohio's favor. The rationale of the decision was that the exhibition of motion pictures is a business conducted for profit. It is not a part of the press or expression of public opinion. Um, so it is not covered under freedom of speech. You know, nobody's saying that if you rent it out a private gallery and showed your movie that you couldn't do it, but you're doing it for ticket sales, not for, for art. So um, right. in that case, uh, it's not freedom of speech. Don't tread on me. All these censor boards popped up. There was a lot of political pressure in the 1920s on Hollywood to clean up motion pictures. There was an impression that Hollywood was filled with degenerate people, uh, scandals, that films were risque. Really what was happening here is the push-pull that sort of continues to this day between what is on the surface framed as a like city folk don't have real values that ur you know rural folk right. have thing, but beneath that is really a Hollywood knows that sex sells and churches don't like that right. kind of conflict. Why can't the church just be cool? Well, they're getting cooler. Pope Francis is, he's, yeah. he's woke. Yeah. He's woke. <laughs> he, he's, he's woke by the standards of the church, which is. Of, of Roman Catholicism. That's right. He's, well, I, I think that's. He's a maverick, man. A maverick. I think that that's what's interesting <laughs> about, like, if you do go and watch, like, even, like, early 20s film. Like, mm -hmm. you can get some pretty violent and, like, risque, even like stuff. risque kind of, like, semi-nudity stuff that oh, just gets oh, completely cut out by the late 20s. But Absolutely. So, I mean, the other thing was there was a lot of attention on the private lives of Hollywood stars um, in this period, like there is today. Um, so, there are various sex scandals and, and murders that were covered up and, and things like this that contributed to this impression that Hollywood was this den of sin that was poisoning America. I call my bedroom the den of sin. On a business standpoint, what was unacceptable to Hollywood was that each state has its own censor board and each state therefore censored films differently. Mm. So you're trying to make sure that you don't have to pay these censor boards too much by keeping the amount of material that is going to get censored low. But what gets censored in New York might not be what gets censored in Kansas might not be what gets censored in uh, California. And you're, you're having to make these guesses. And what you're ending up with is there's no way to just make your movie sure that everyone will be cool with it different wildly different versions of your movie are coming out across the country and you're having to cut them different for different states and that's costing you a lot of money mm. so with that plus the pr problem of hollywood at the time um this presbyterian named william harrison hayes was brought in to clean up hollywood's image so hollywood invited him in to um basically create an office that would advise um, the studios on the content of their films, um, basically figuring that self-censorship would be easier and more controllable than going to all of these different state censor boards mm -hmm. or waiting for the problem to become 
such a issue that the federal government steps in, which nobody wants. Um, Hayes is a bit of an interesting guy. He was a he managed uh, Warren G. Harding's presidential campaign. So he was a Republican. He was the chairman of the RNC mm. uh, for some time. He was uh, involved in a major scandal because of needing to pay down the RNC's debt, where Harding gave him control of Navy oil reserves, basically by transferring responsibility of them from the Navy Department to the Department of the Interior. Uh, and then Sinclair Oil paid Hayes a ton of money in um, cash and bonds for those oil reserves. Uh, and um, It sounds like you're result- saying that there was like some, like, uh, I don't know, like politicians that were involved in nef- <laughs> nefarious non- things, non legal things. I, I, yeah, I can't yeah. imagine um, what that would be like today if that was allowed to exactly. happen. Exactly. Uh, so the Secretary of the Interior ended up being uh, convicted for accepting bribes and became the first U.S. cabinet member to serve a prison sentence out of this, and Hayes had to resign. Dang. They were so hardcore back then. Which is what led to him becoming president of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors Association of America, which we now call the MPAA, because he needed to get the heck out of government real fast and get himself a new position. But he was a conservative. He was a Presbyterian. He was a Republican. So he had all the right bona fides for cleaning up Hollywood. Um, so he came in and basically came up with a formula called, it it was sort of do's, don'ts, and be carefuls, um, (laughs) for what you could and couldn't do in a movie, you know? And the idea here was to try and get you a broad enough swath that you could be assured that your movie could play as easily in New York as it could in Kansas City. Sure. But who wants to go there? The problem was that these were recommendations. So this wasn't a rule. This wasn't, there was no enforcement here. This was you submit your script or your film, he looks over it or his department, his office, you know, eventually this grew to be a number of people looked at your thing and said, okay, well, here's what you should consider. And then producers, directors would go yay or nay, depending on what they thought about it. That's kind of similar in my feeling like to online creation with um uh, fair use or fair dealing depending on which country Mm -hmm. you happen to live in like that's not an actual legal ruling (laughs) or anything like that it's just like it's up to a court to decide whether or not it falls into place so the studios agreed to you know adopt the code uh to abide by its decisions largely as a pr thing to avoid the government coming in so they could say we do have this board it tells us you know what we should be putting in our movies it's run by this guy etc etc and then i know that there was like a bunch of like throughout the the decades after that like different situations where people would try and push against it but like where does it really start to break down well Before it starts to break down, it actually has to become powerful, which it it wasn't quite yet. Um, It was kind of a joke. Um, (laughs) You there were certain rules that were just nonsense and nobody took seriously. Like you can't portray crime sympathetically. So you can't make a movie about the Boston Tea Party. This kind of thing. Um, Nobody really took it seriously. It was a joke. Nobody cared. Uh, What changed was that in 1933, uh, the Roman Catholic National Legion of Decency was founded. That sounds serious. Yes. And it rated films as whether they were okay or sinful. 
for parishioners to attend. Do you so, walk with or against Jesus? That was what. The- right. Exactly. So the Legion of Decency basically was saying, if you're a Catholic and you go to see this film, it's a sin. And this, you know, worried Hollywood partly because of losing Catholic business, but also it worried Hayes because he felt that this was undercutting his role Mm. as the moral arbiter of film art. Um, So they brought in some different peoples, um, mostly Catholics, to come in and rewrite the code write this stricter version and also to start an office called the production code administration, which was a body that would enforce the code. And so starting in 1934, the rule was films without a code certificate could not be shown in theaters whose owners were members of the MPAA. Mm. Now, back in the thirties, theaters were owned by studios. Uh, Hollywood was vertically integrated. So to give an example, Paramount makes movies then distributes them to theaters called famous players that are owned by Paramount. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the same company all the way down. So if you were a Paramount, a Paramount owned theater, you were a member of the MPAA, which meant that if a film didn't have a production code certificate, it couldn't be shown in your theater. Um, which meant that if you didn't have a certificate, you were basically stuck being shown in like downtown grindhouse theaters right. or or that kind of thing. Who doesn't want to hang out on Skid Row? So this is basically when the code started to be enforced strictly. And the rules in the code are what gives you that squeaky clean Hollywood that you see in the 30s and 40s. You can't have swear words. You can't have, you know, a kiss that lasts more than three seconds. Right, right, right. Uh, you, you can't have, if two people go to bed together uh, or are in a bed together, one of them has to still have their feet on the ground, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, no sex, no violence, no swearing, no blasphemy. It's, it's interesting uh, because the new code was very much forged by catholic values um partly because they were kind of seen as the most strict it was like if you can please the catholics you can probably please everybody else so a good way to look at the production code is jewish owned businesses selling catholic morality to protestant america <laughs> it is, is basically what you're dealing with um in addition that, that's to, a movie right there <laughs> that's uh is a movie it's it's called hey C- uh, hail caesar oh right Uh, Now, the other part of this, in addition to the code being enforced, was the studios themselves taking a much greater role in controlling their stars' lives. So this is also the period when the personal life of actors, actresses, etc. was being much more controlled. Yeah, I, I mean, you were signing a contract with, like, say, Fox, right? So I am a mm-hmm. I'm a Fox actor. I only appear in Fox films. Right. Uh, unless Fox they make a owns, deal where they like trade an actor back and forth yeah, or something. And, and Fox owns you and owns your image. They gave you your stage name, probably. They've probably come up with your identity. A great example of this is actually Columbia Studios and Rita Hayworth. Mm. Uh, Rita Hayworth, famous ginger bombshell starlet of the 1940s, actually Mexican. And her whiteness and her her red hair and her looks were all completely sort of and her name all completely manufactured by her studio um and no, so that's actually this, quite the, that's the similar with uh dave here like this is not his real name that's not his real hair color 
all of it's manufactured. I'm not even Asian. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm black. Yeah. Um, Whatever pleases the audience, Kyle. This yeah. is a deep, so, rich fiction for this podcast. So you have a long period of time where, for example, if an actor's gay, it's kept cut hush hush. You know, it's not. That uh, I believe sud- gay was actually invented in the '90s. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, and I mean, to so, the cla- Catholics. Yeah. So, so this is the thing with the code: is it creates a artificially skewed view of the past for right, us, right? Because yeah. the easiest way for us to view the past is through movies and pop culture. And so you go back and you look at movies from the thirties and forties where no one was ever gay and no one ever had extramarital sex and no one ever used drugs and no one ever swore and uh, cops were always right. And you know, only the bad guys ever died and you go, Oh, things were so much simpler and more moral back then. And it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> movies were censored back then. Right, right, Trust right. me. People were still doing heroin. People were still having sex outside of marriage black people still existed there were gays all of this stuff well i mean the, the one of the big, biggest examples that i know about is the film version of cat on a hot tin roof which mm. is like he is a gay person in that play and that you would do not know that if you watch the movie version of that one play. of the th- one of the things that came about because of all of this and these rules um was the idea that we now refer to as coding it's 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 technically true to say that there are no, say, gay people in Hollywood released movies from the 1940s. It is also still false because writers and directors and actors would find ways to put drugs or extramarital sex or mm-hmm. gay people or whatever into the movies in such ways that they would sneak them by the censors so that, um, you know, you 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 coded characters so there were behaviors and ways of speaking and acting that everyone kind of knew signaled oh that person's gay um without saying it you know if if you're seeing a character in a movie who's a uh a young bachelor who's middle-aged yet unwed um or or another great my favorite example of this is the maltese falcon the humphrey bogart film the maltese falcon from 1941 with humphrey bogart is a remake uh, the original came out in 1931, before the code was enforced. Um, the way that Hollywood used to make a lot of their money with movies back in the days before home video was with re-releases. Every five years or so, you'd put the movie back into theaters again, and it would be like, hey, come see Casablanca if you missed it the first time. Mm-hmm. Because before home video, that was the only way you could see a movie more than once. You couldn't re-release the 1931 Maltese Falcon. Too much of it violated the new... 1934 production code. So they had to remake it. And it's this remake that's become more well-remembered. In the remake, uh, Humphrey Bogart refers to Elijah Cook Jr.'s character as a gunsel. Sounds like a real friend of Dorothy's. Which the censors and probably 90% of viewers for the next 50 years or so assumed meant he was a hired gunman because he is putting Humphrey Bogart at gunpoint and following him around and taking the orders of um, Sidney Greenstreet's character, Casper Gutman. But Casper Gutman is so reluctant to give up Elijah Cook Jr.'s character to the police as a fall guy. Why is he so reluctant to give up this young kind of hired gun? Well, because Gunsel doesn't mean a hired gun. It means the receiving end in a gay relationship. Mm-hmm. And that is his relationship with Gutman. Uh, but because nobody knew what that word meant, they were able to sneak that by the censors. So that's a, an example of coding. 
Um, Kyle, I think we've got a we've got a catchphrase. That's right. We'll <laughs> that's be, our uh, first T-shirt. Yeah, I think we'll be referring. Yeah, I'm a gunsel. <laughs> Hey everyone, just Kyle breaking into the conversation one more time to tell you about some of the great people who help this show continue to go. I am sorry to, you know, rudely interrupt our kind of like university style lecture about the history of the Hayes Code and what was going on pre-1971. I personally just find this stuff super fascinating. So I was a huge fan and I love the fact that Ben decided to come on and let us know because he is also super passionate about this topic. And he does mention it at the end. And I mentioned it already at the beginning. But if you have not checked out the podcast Scream Scene, I really encourage you to do so. It is it has become one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. Hopefully you do this with our podcast. Uh, but definitely what I do with theirs is I try my hardest to actually watch the film before I listen to them discuss it. And it adds this extra layer to it because it's kind of like fresh in my mind. And the nice thing about a lot of their movies, because they're still in like the 1950s, is that um, sometimes you can find those movies on YouTube without having to actually buy the DVD or Blu-ray copy. Um, there's also this great website called archive.org, which for whatever reason has a bunch of old films on it. And I'm not quite sure how legal that is, but it is a site on the internet that I go to. And I'm not encouraging you to break copyright. I'm just saying that it's a website that I go to. Anyways, I should tell you that Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This episode of Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is brought to you by the Calgary Foundation, proudly supporting community needs for 65 years. Empathy, kindness, generosity, we are united in our desire to give, to inspire hope, and transform the lives of people who are struggling in turbulent times. And the Calgary Foundation is here to help. From mental health programs to environmental causes, the Community Knowledge Center website features profiles of charitable organizations, all searchable by area of interest. Be inspired by compelling stories, be informed of innovative work, be responsive to the needs. To connect to hundreds of outstanding charitable organizations serving our community, visit ckc.calgaryfoundation.org. To learn more about the Calgary Foundation, visit calgaryfoundation.org. This episode of Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is also brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta, offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. Park Power is owned by Chris Kozowski, who has a growing and well-deserved reputation for being a guy who cares. If you're in the Edmonton area, you may have seen him around town in his signature bow tie, supporting local causes and boosting local business. He walks that talk with his business. It's why Park Power shares its profits with local charities. As a new customer, you can choose a community partner to receive 10% of the proceeds from your electricity bill, such as the CKUA radio network. Visit parkpower.ca slash CKUA to find out more. So what changed all this is a lot of different factors, the first of which was television in the 1950s. If the rules on content for film was strict, the rules for content on television was stricter. Mm -hmm. Because the idea here is that you could sort of police 
film because you have to buy a ticket to get inside. Whereas TV, anyone can turn it on at any time. So TV had to be even more sanitized than film. But Hollywood was having a hell of a time competing with TV because again, I can sit in my house and turn on TV anytime. I have to leave it and pay money to go to a theater. And so between the 1940s to the 1950s, movies shifted dramatically from being something that the entire family goes to at least once a week and spends like a whole afternoon at on Saturday to now the family sits home and watches TV and, you know, the people who are going to movies are 15 and 16 year olds on dates. Right. It's like um, that, that rise of the teenagers you start to see. In exactly. Films, right? Exactly. And, it's and you cycle see, of time. Yeah. We're, we're back. Right. Yeah. We're back there. <laughs> and, and yeah, exactly. And so, you know, they're there for teens to have a place to go date because they can't get into bars and stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you have that Just rise of the necking. teenager. You also have the rise of Hollywood trying all kinds of gimmicks to try and comp- get people out of their homes and back to the theater, which is exactly what we kind of see today with Hollywood versus streaming. Uh, In fact, some of these gimmicks are very familiar to us. The 1950s was the first big explosion of 3D in cinema. Um, It's also where we started to get widescreen Mm -hmm. uh, films um, as a way to sort of say, well, movies are much bigger than TV. Um, The other thing that started to become popular in America in the 50s and 60s uh, surprisingly, compared to today, it was foreign films. Uh, so Italian films, right. French films, Japanese films, because and that was cause they were being able to show things that the censors were not allow in America. Correct? That's right. You got it because those films were not subject to the production code. So you could have a film like La Dolce Vita come out in the early '60s and be way sexier than any American was used to. And so whether it's in Italian or not, or dubbed or subbed or whatever, you're going to get people coming to see it because they can see things in that movie that they can't see anywhere else. Mm-hmm. It's awful that we had to wait so long for Justin Timberlake to bring sexy back. And so the production code starts to break down a bit as the studios are trying to compete with TV. The studios start to get a bit more um, risque. They start to get a bit more uh, willing to to not play by the rules. And some of them, like United Artists, uh, most specifically, uh, were starting to get willing to release movies without code seals. Um, specifically because in the early 1950s, the U.S. government ruled that movie studios couldn't own theaters. Right. Um, they, they broke up the vertical integration. And so the problem of, well, if you make this movie, your theater can't show it, stops to have, starts to have less teeth. And groups like United Artists start putting out movies like Some Like It Hot, mm-hmm. uh, starring Marilyn Monroe, which did not have a code seal for reasons that you can probably guess. It's a movie about cross-dressing. That wouldn't be allowed. Uh, Otto Preminger starts putting out movies uh, like Anatomy of a Murder that don't have code seals because the amount of violence in them. And then we get to the 1960s. And, you know, of course, the 1960s is a huge period of social upheaval. You've got the generation gap you've got the hippie movement you've got the drug culture you've got the free love movement you've got the civil rights movement all of these things that are very rapidly changing american culture and making the values of the production code which were 1934 catholic values (laughs) suddenly start to seem like really really out of date Um, and in fact they rewrote the code a few times in this period to try and make it more relevant to try and loosen some of those restrictions, um, it was rewritten in 1956, uh, again in 1966, in attempts to try and modernize it. But more and more movies were just deciding to release 
without code approval. Yeah. Um, I actually read this really great book here. It's actually on my bookshelf over here, which is called Pictures at a Revolution. Um, and it's looking specifically at 1967 and like how that kind of was this tipping point because they are like yeah. now the Oscars are like nominating the graduate and um, some uh, not so like it hot um, in the heat of the night and yes. uh, Bonnie and Clyde. And yes. people are like, this is like new Hollywood versus old Hollywood. And it's like, <laughs> it's like they're just hitting up against each other. The other thing that's happening economically speaking is those kind of squeaky clean for the family Hollywood genres like your, you know, big musicals, right? Your Judy Garland style musicals and stuff are making less and less money. Mm -hmm. They're costing more and more and they're making less and less. Um, so, you know, what you can see is that kind of musical dies after Hello, Dolly with yeah. Barbara Streisand um, because they just aren't reflecting the American culture anymore. Those were movies that were meant to be they, they were box office hits because the whole family would come to see it. Mm -hmm. And the whole family doesn't want to come to see it right now because the kids aren't talking to the parents and none of them care about Barbara Streisand. Um, I care so, about Barbara Streisand. <laughs> <laughs> so, Last so, man standing. <laughs> right. So, so um, in addition to all of this and the fact that the old genres aren't working, Americans themselves are becoming less scandalized by some of these topics. You know, Kennedy gets shot, mm -hmm. RFK gets shot, MLK gets shot, and footage from Vietnam is being shown on the news every day. Casualty reports from Vietnam are getting read out on the news every day. Um, Kent State is happening, riots. People are seeing violence on TV, not in the TV shows, but on the news right. to a very great degree. And so this idea that we, you know, the old fashioned ways of violence, for instance, in movies where someone got shot and a puff of smoke would come out of a gun and then a person 10 feet away would sort of spin around in a pirouette, go, ah, and then fall over. It isn't working. It's laughable because we're seeing what real violence and real gunshots look like on TV, right. on the news every single day. So these things aren't speaking to Americans anymore. They want more realism. And so, yeah, you have films like Bonnie and Clyde. What happens is in 1966 or 67, the code ends, basically because all of the studios sort of say, yeah, we're not following this anymore. Right. And it takes all the teeth out of it and, and it ends. Um, so for 1967, 68, there's a year, year and a half there where there's no code, but there's also nothing else. It's, it's a total free for all. And that's the environment where you start to get movies like Bonnie and Clyde, yeah. where the amount of sex and violence is way up from anything that you would have seen before and you know you have all these foreign films coming in like the you know i am curious yellow and and these kind of things that are are much sexier than people are used to or much more violent than people are used to and americans responding to them like bonnie and clyde was a huge box office hit right yeah. this stuff is all working but that doesn't mean that there are that you know america is completely devoid of those same religious factors or parents groups that led to the code in the first place. Like yeah. there are still people fighting for those, you know, traditional conservative values and wanting to see that reflected. And there's a, a recognition too, that the kind of new free for all approach isn't maybe the best way forward yeah. either because for the filmmakers, 
It's creating a marketing problem. Dear God, who will think of the marketers? Because um, in 1962, everyone knows that while a James Bond movie might be a little risque and have a little bit more sex and violence than, say, a Disney film, ultimately, it's still okay for everyone because that was the thing about the code you had different genres obviously you had you know kids films and films for adults but regardless of whether you were watching you know the maltese falcon or bambi legally speaking everyone could see both movies right and there shouldn't be anything in either movie that should be too scandalous even though one is obviously for kids one's obviously for adults and that's when you eventually get into like that stratification of here's a a G-rated film versus Mm -hmm. like an R-rated film or X-rated film back then, but... (laughs) Exactly. So, what you have is nobody can tell the difference anymore. Uh, You know, because, hey, well, wait a minute. How much violence can we put in a James Bond movie? How much sex can we put in a James Bond movie? Because is a James Bond movie for adults? I mean, it kind of, but is it... But kids like them too? Right. So, like, where is where's where's the line? What do we do? And how do we market? these films appropriately i think that's what i'm kind of most looking forward to dave here as we get into 1971 is seeing that like teeter-totter effect of like how far (laughs) can we go but also like where where does this film fall in in that ratio you know what'll be interesting uh, at this stage will be as uh, ben keeps bringing up the parallels of what's happening there with their code and what's happening with us you know in modern cinema and uh how mm-hmm. we're reacting to this. Especially in the United States because they just uh, 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 took away that rule that film studios can't own their own theaters. So that That's might right. be coming uh, back into, into form. The Trump administration got rid of that. So yeah, you can have the, the monopoly system uh, mm-hmm. again in Hollywood, um, which may or may not actually save theaters at this point i look forward to disney owning every theater i'll have to buy some top hats i mean that's really (laughs) so so what you started to get was like uh in 1966 who's afraid of virginia wolf has a suggested for mature audiences label put on the poster which doesn't come from the mpaa that's warner brothers putting that on there because they're like uh we don't really know what the deal is here so maybe you don't bring your kids Finally, after a year or so of the Wild West, the MPAA rating system goes into effect uh, in 1968, late 1968, November 1st. And this is the system that these movies you're seeing in 71 will be under. It's very different in some ways from what we have today. Mm -hmm. The ratings will sound familiar, but the way that they're applied is a little different. So the original ratings were G, M, R, and X. G meant general exhibition. Anyone can come see this. It it basically meant like this is kind of what you're used to. You know, these are movies that would have been released under the code. No problem, right? Like it doesn't mean children's film. It means everyone can come see this. No problem. M meant suggested for mature audiences. So in the heat of the night, um, Bonnie and Clyde, these kind of movies that are pushing the limits a little bit. R was restricted. You couldn't get into the movie if you were under 16 unless you were accompanied by a parent. And X meant if you were under 16, you couldn't get in, period. This is what they all meant. Um, These ratings got changed because of basically consumer confusion. So uh, M 
got changed because there was confusion from consumers over the meaning of mature audiences. What does that mean? Does that mean this is porn? Like, right. does that mean that this is for old people? Does that mean, like, what does this mean? Is it, so is it was, a bit of both? Yeah. Yeah. So it was changed to GP, which mm. meant uh, general exhibition parental guidance suggested. That's the rating that was in vogue in 1971, GP. In 72, it was changed to PG for parental guidance. Yeah. The X rating stayed in effect until 1990 when it was replaced by NC-17, mostly just because, again, people started to assume X meant porn um, because of pornographic movies marketing their films. (laughs) Yes, as double X, triple X to say like, hey, X means this. So triple X means even like raunchier, even racier, right? It means porn. So that sort of then back... That's how I think of Vin Diesel all the time. Triple X. He's so pornographic. Yeah, that's right. So so that sort of ended up back splashing onto the real rating. So they changed the name. What you don't have at this time is PG-13. Which, if I remember correctly, is because of Temple of Doom, isn't that? That's correct. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Temple of Doom, because there was a feeling of like, well, this isn't an R movie. Yeah. But this also can't be PG. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, Um, they're eating hearts in this movie. We can't. Right. So socially speaking... In 1971, what these ratings mean are G is a movie that's okay for everybody. You know, it could include like, um, this is a few years in the future, but like Star Trek, the motion picture was rated G. Right. Doesn't mean that it's for kids. It just means there's nothing in here that's going to offend anybody. Right. right, Um, right. Whereas your PG is these more adult films, but are still like, okay for everybody. Um, And then R just meant like, this is for adults, this isn't for kids. Um, The kind of stigmas and assumptions that we have around these ratings that exist today weren't quite in place in 1971 because they were brand new. And the the thing that didn't exist then yet was what we have today, which is a kind of commodification of demographic to rating. So today... The only movies that are getting rated G are coming out of Disney or, or or other like kids animated films. That's all that G means is it's for kids. You know, PG is adults and kids can both see this, but it's it's probably, um, you know, like a mild action movie or something. PG-13 is your sweet spot. You can be just edgy enough to you get people the excited. once or twice or something in it if you yeah, want to. Uh, uh, twice is your fuck. max. Uh, you can have a certain amount of blood. You can have a certain amount of violence. You can have a certain amount of side boob. Uh, enough to excite the teenagers who are your core demographic, right. but not enough to mean that those teens can't see the movie. And then like... Would, would you say to titillate them? Right. Would exactly. Uh, whereas like R is practically a kiss of death and nc-17 absolutely is even though yeah. it's a valid rating it just means if you're under 17 you cannot get in that's all yeah, it means you're really restricting the box office at that point but yeah but people view it as a kiss of death in 1971 you don't have that yet and what you so what you kind of have is and, and especially with this new content this these new rules this new laxing of these regulations plus the social situation that's happening in america at the moment with the protests and the war and the 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 all the social change that's happening a bunch of whiners if you ask me is you have this large genre of movies that are adult films exploring gritty subject matter with frank 
violence and sexuality and language, but that are still mass market movies that everyone is going to go see right that's i think what i'm the most like excited for as we jump into this and into the wild west because i feel Mm -hmm. like that's like the breakdown of all all of these different systems but we still have like the last vestiges of like old hollywood with like john wayne and like all these people Mm -hmm. who are still making movies in the in the early 70s and now have and now have this unexpected freedom right so the french connection which you mentioned earlier for instance like that was or, or, or The Godfather, which comes out the next year in 1972, yeah. that's rated R, but like that's not a kiss of death. It's not like today we're like, well, that's rated R, so it's probably going to make, you know, under $100 million and it's, you know, very restricted appeal and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. No, I mean, that movie won every damn Oscar that there was and everyone went to go see it. So to wrap things up here, Ben, what is your favorite film from 1971? What's uh, the, <laughs> the film that jumps out at you? Ooh, um, it's THX 1138, actually. Oh, uh, oh I, I think I, I read I, that the other day about how much you like that I, movie. I unironically really love that movie. And that movie is actually such a great example of how much Hollywood didn't know what it was doing in 1971. Because <laughs> yeah. that movie happened because Easy Rider happened in 1968. And essentially... Hollywood realized that all of these guys who were directing movies up till 1968 were all like 60 years old or older and that there was this huge generation gap that nobody gave a shit about, you know, Barbra Streisand anymore, except for you. And they had no idea what people liked anymore. And Easy Rider came out and cost basically nothing to make. And was just a movie about like two actors nobody cared about who weren't stars getting high and driving motorcycles. And it was this massive hit and it was directed by a bunch of young people. And they went, Oh, okay. So to connect with young people, we need young directors and we need them to make cheap movies that don't really make sense to us. Cause we're old and we don't know what the kids like. So if it doesn't make sense to us, who really cares? Just let them do whatever they want. And as long as it's young and hip and new, it'll be fine. And so THX is a movie that came about because Warner Brothers looked at the graduating class of UCLA or USC film school and went that guy. Yeah. Yeah. And basically went, okay, what do you kids have? And Francis Ford Coppola said, well, I'll make a company and I'll basically hire all my classmates and you'll just give us money to make movies. And they were like, yeah, sure. (laughs) And they just gave George Lucas a bunch of money. And he took a student film that he made that was an abstract art piece and expanded it into a feature and they were like yeah here have a bunch of money and (laughs) then they put it out and you know and it's an r-rated film and it didn't make any money and nobody knew what the fuck it meant (laughs) and it was this huge failure and warner brothers went oops oops Uh, actually on second thought let's never do that again but it happened because nobody knew what movies were anymore (laughs) in this moment in 1971 i don't know what they are now well, Dave, I'm excited to uh, take this journey with you to try and figure out what movies are in 1971. <laughs> uh, just to wrap, uh, uh, Ben, if people wanted to stay in contact with you, what are the easiest ways to do so online? Oh, sure. Uh, so you can come at me on Twitter at Cineast Ben Rowe. That's C-I-N-E-A-S-T-B-E-N-R-O-W-E. Uh, or you can follow my podcast, uh, Scream Scene, where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst, and that's at underscore Scream Scene on Twitter, or 
tumblr.com slash scream scene podcast. We have covered from 1895 to 1955. And our next episode is on invasion of the body snatchers. Excellent. Ooh. Dave, I uh, I didn't say this at the beginning, but I am really uh, excited by your tasteful side boob that you've been protruding this entire episode. <laughs> well, I think it's important that everybody understands how titillating it is to make to make these uh, productions with you, Kyle. Yes. I mean, it's the only reason why we can do it. That's right. Is because we're naked. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's going to be a theme for 1971. I'm pretty sure we'll we'll see some. Uh, so you're you're probably going to see some very unexpected nudity in genres of film that you wouldn't expect it. <laughs> That's because right. again, no business. Nobody yeah. has any idea what they're doing. Everyone forgets about that in Willy Wonka, actually. It's just like, <laughs> whoa, what is going on? <laughs> is that his penis? Yeah. I can't wait. It's not a lollipop. Dang, they were so hardcore back then.